Hey there, welcome back to the Path to Zion podcast where we are rediscovering the ancient way. Thank you so much for tuning back in for part three of the ongoing series, Fashioning Idols Out of Covenantal Earrings. By now, if you've been following the series so far, parts one and two, you know why we titled this series that. And uh, hopefully you've been tracking with what I'm trying to present, and I'm, I'm hoping it's being made clear. I understand it's a lot of information and a lot of words, so much so that uh, I'm losing my voice a little bit, but we've got a long way to go. Um, just a quick recap a little bit, just for the sake of time. Where we ended at the very end was I was reading Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where there is this warning of, of what's coming about being a forgetful people. And, and what I want to spend a couple minutes on, as I alluded to at the very outset of this when we first started the series, was that as we talk about the, the biblical pattern of fashioning idols with our own hands, with our own imaginations, and attributing worship to Yahweh via them, via the, those vehicles, if you will, of how we bring Him praise and worship and adoration, is a very dangerous thing. And it is idolatry, clearly, hands down. And alongside that, I believe the reason we do that is because we're an impatient people. We're an impatient people. Not just in 2021, and you know how kids are today with ADHD and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about humanity. We are a people who don't want to wait to go through a process in order to get a result. Why don't, why don't Christians, for the most part, wholeheartedly study? Well, it takes a lot of time. There's no room. Back when I used to detail cars for people, I don't know how many cars I would do when I worked in the Bible Belt just had uh, a Bible on their dashboard or in their trunk. Well, why? It's there for, for service. It's there for Sunday morning service. I know right where it is because that's where I left it. Or, or we do little topical Bible studies, of course, in our efforts. We've all gone through these things. We've all tried to to be discipled and to study and go through topical books and all these things we've tried. But what we need is an upheaval of our approach to what we're doing and why and the importance of it where every other thing, and I struggle with this in my own life, I'm not saying I'm a master of this, that we study to show ourselves approved. And we're not forgetful and we're not a people who grow weary in well-doing. And like we were warned in Second Peter chapter 3, May we not just be saying, Yeshua's never coming back. It's not going to be in my lifetime, or it's not going to be in my child's lifetime. Just, I'm tired of waiting. Because people are going to do that. There's a great falling away coming, and all these things as people are disappointed. That rapture doctrine doesn't play out like they had been taught, and all these things where people will be disgruntled, and they're just going to say, you know what, I quit. None of this stuff works. And that goes back to the problem that we alluded to in, in part two. When we start having a pantheon of God's understanding of what those cultures did, which is what I, what I presented as the exchange principle, if God doesn't quite give you the payoff that you think you deserve, forget it. I'm out of here. God's not even real. How many people do we all know in our life that came through the vein of Christianity, probably brought up in the church, and now they're atheists. Well, why? They were told a doctrine that's not true, not biblical, of a 
of a Jesus that when you give him your heart, when you ask him in your heart, you don't give him your heart, that would actually be right, but when you invite him into your heart, he gets in there and makes everything great. And when life doesn't go that way and you begin to question why these hard things come and why trials come and you don't understand Ecclesiastes and Job and so much stuff in the scriptures, you attribute it to God not being who you've been taught he is and thereby you walk away from faith. You leave the faith. So all this stuff matters and is absolutely applicable to us, I believe. So we say ourselves, is Yeshua delaying? too long? I want to just ride this point for a moment. Has the church given up on waiting? I mean, really, not in her verbiage, but I mean in her heart. Has she been waiting so long that now we've fashioned another Elohim according to her own likeness? Why? (laughs) Because we, too, have grown weary in waiting. We've decided to fashion something else with our own hands in order to satisfy us. Let's be real harsh. Are we now merely dancing about as prostitutes despite our identity as ones called to be holy and set apart, discreet, set apart for a jealous, holy God? As ones betrothed to the bridegroom Yeshua. And we have eyes for no other period. We identify a false God and we say no. We talked about that with the study we just um, talking about our hearts being wholly committed, like Daniel. Wholly committed. I'm not. I'm not going to be defiled. We've talked about that recently. Is it possible? Now this one's a stretch for many, so I'm going to take a drink and make sure I say it correctly. This might sting some of you. Stings me, but makes me makes me step back and all right, Father, is this in me? Is this true? This is a question that's tough for most everybody I know. It's a pretty deep thought, actually. Is it possible that Western Christianity's Jesus, that is so devoid of the true Jewish Rabbi Yeshua, has been erected to stand in for the bridegroom that has gone away to prepare a place for his betrothed ones? All right, now this you got to put your thinking cap on for this, some of you. Some of you, this is old news. You've got that years ago. This is, this is kind of new understanding being added to my life. So I pose it as a question to, to you if you consider yourself one who ascribes to Western Christianity. Just traditional Christianity. Is it possible that Western Christianity's Jesus, that is so devoid of the true Jewish Rabbi Yeshua of the Scriptures, who, who wore zitzit and went to the synagogue and taught that the Father's commands are eternal. <laughs> Is it possible that new, new religion Jesus has been erected, fashioned, with a graven tool, if you will, our own imagination, our own liking, to stand in for the bridegroom, Yeshua? that has gone away to prepare a place for his betrothed ones. Why would we do that? Why? Why would Christianity fashion a new Messiah? Because perhaps I would say it's at least possible that the Christian church, like the children of Israel before her, has grown weary in waiting. 
and she's forgotten the one true Elohim. Or she never understood him. Or she didn't like him when she saw him. How many, how many comparisons can we make? Or they have become ignorant in their religiosity, like we saw Athens when Paul encountered them. Is it not ironic that today Christians simply refer to Yahweh as merely God? This is not happenstance. As if he has no name. No specific holy name. It's almost always regarded as entirely irrelevant, his name is. But this contradicts Scripture, and I believe it's part of our reality of walking in ignorance, yet religious, to an unknown God. The great deity. The creator. I believe that, too, is a form of idolatry. So let's jump back to Exodus chapter 25. Yahweh gives clear instructions to his people. Okay, now let's listen to this and talk about this for a couple minutes. I'll, I'll stop being so offensive uh, for a couple minutes. It's not my goal. It's not my purpose. I just know that it is. Okay, so let's read this. Chapter 25 of Exodus. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to take a contribution for me. Okay, Yahweh's giving a request. This is, this is what I want the sons of Israel to bring to me. From everyone whose heart moves him and who wholeheartedly wants to give. Can I make, I italicize and underlines that, underline that. Because the pushback that I get from New Testament believers this new new Jesus religion church people of again that I was my my identity for my whole life. They say that's just hollow religion, keeping Torah, bringing sacrifices. Hebrews says that we have a great all these things. I know what it says, but we don't understand verses like this. From everyone, this is Yahweh talking. Bring these things, these contributions to me, from everyone whose heart moves him and who wholeheartedly wants to give. These are a people who are wanting to give sacrifices and offerings and praise to Father Yahweh uh, Elohim all, all day long. They want to bring a sacrifice. We say, well, we praise for real now. It's, we're so arrogant. It goes on, you shall take my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, violet, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skin, dyed red, fine leather. It goes on and on and on, all these things. Stones for an ephod and breastpiece. Have them construct a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. He wants to dwell in their literal midst. It continues, according to all that I am going to show you. Future tense. As the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so shall you construct it. So, I, why do I say that? Number one, these people are worshiping Yahweh in spirit and in truth. To use New Testament verbiage from their whole heart. We are no different, no better different epoch of time. But I want to highlight this at the very end, because in Exodus 25, Yahweh is speaking to his people, and he's saying, I'm going to show you what I want you to build for me. I'm going to give you instruction on what you can 
assemble for me according to my pleasing ways. But the people couldn't wait. The people would not wait for it. And that's why I bring that verse out, that text specifically, those four or five verses. He's saying, at a future date, I'm going to show you what pleases me and what you can erect for me. But it's in a future tense. Now contrast that with what I've been talking about in Exodus 35, 10 through 22. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything Yahweh has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering, class, frames, crossbars, posts, bases... Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to Yahweh. Okay, pause. Everyone who, who wanted to partake in this, whose heart moved them. Okay, does this sound like a strict, law-keeping, burdensome people? No. Again, we're dispelling these mysteries of what we've inherited through our modern Christianity and the errant teaching that it is of how we've made testaments black and white. They are not the same as what we've been taught. New covenant, old covenant, you know? But these people whose heart moved them came. They brought offerings to Yahweh for the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for sacred garments. All who were willing... This is redundant, is it not? Men and women alike, they brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, ornaments, and they presented their gold as a wave offering to Yahweh. Now, this is Exodus 35. So now we're moving on a little bit on the other side of all this mess we've been reading. The earring is in here. What is it this time? It is brought and presented as a wave offering to Yahweh Elohim and for the construction of his holy house, repurposed, if you will, redeemed, which he, he, the Father, always does. Now we see, now here, we see the proper use of the same item, item that was originally used for idolatry. Okay? In the in-between, right between the instruction in Exodus 25 and the execution in Exodus 35. Again, why? Because they were not willing to wait for the timing of Yahweh to unfold. They weren't willing to wait. They were told something that was coming that they would do and how to do it. But they would not wait. We need to learn. I'm, I'm being redundant on purpose so that we get this through our minds. They had to take control and fashion an idol. I would say that we've been guilty of the same thing. We've done the same thing. The golden calf, oh man, we have to touch on this because, okay, so we're back in Exodus. Moses comes down, and what does he find? Yahweh tells him, look, Moses, this is awesome, but you got to go back down. And what does he go down and find in, in the golden calf incident? He, let's talk about this. He, he sees two things first. The golden calf and people dancing. That's the first two things that he sees when he comes down. Again, we'll, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Moses' anger burned. He's ticked, right? Why? Let's talk about some reasons why. Because we could just obviously say why. Well, he was a just man and, you know, all this stuff. They were disobedient and he was righteous. There's more to it than that, I would say. Perhaps it was because, according to Scripture, 
The last time I tracked this back, man, this is so much fun studying the Word of God and finding where things were and going back and forth. I found that the last time the Bible recorded Yah's people dancing was in Exodus 15. Okay, so here we're in Exodus 32, and Moses comes back down. He pleads with God, oh, please don't burn them up. Please don't consume them. <laughs> I know they deserve it, but please don't. He's the perfect mediator, just like Yeshua, in that sense. So Moses comes down, and he sees the people's rebellion. He saw two things. The first thing, two things his eyes beheld were the golden calf and people dancing. The, the last time the Bible records is in Exodus 15. And what had just happened? This is not happenstance, friends. Moses, a real man in real-life circumstances, walks down there. He hears the sound, and what does he see? He sees a golden calf and all the people rejoicing and dancing like they're worshiping Yahweh Elohim. In his mind, I believe, and this is just speculative, and I love the scriptures, let's make them real life. I believe Moses' memory goes back to Exodus chapter 15. And what had just happened? Israel's deliverance. Israel's deliverance had just happened. The song of Moses that culminates in verses 20 and 21 says this. <coughs> Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing again this is the last time dancing is recorded in the word the previous time was here praise the lord for our deliverance praise be to yahweh for setting us free from our captives and delivering us in a way that no one else ever could ascribing worship and praise and adoration to their deliverer in this uh, text, Miriam answered them, said, Sing to Yahweh, he is exalted, highly. The horse and his rider he is hurling to the sea. And they play tambourines, and they dance. And then Moses comes down, and in that instance of time, I believe he's correlating the two, and he's seeing them in front of a calf, declaring that the calf was their deliverer, and they're dancing and singing praises to Yahweh via the golden calf. And he's infur infuriated. Imagine the situation. The time previous, they were declaring Yah's deliverance. The next time Moses sees that, they're doing the same thing, but attributing it to the golden calf. I'll add this too, because I've been looking at the, the fellowship I'm a part of. We've been talking about the Hebrew wedding model. model. For weeks, <clears throat> we could spend years on it. Now, this is way far down with levels of, of thought to explore here in full. But let's just talk about it for a minute. So in light of everything I've just talked about the last few minutes, Moses, I would submit that Moses breaking the tablets was likely not just some act of rage. But perhaps he understood that by destroying the marriage contract that the law was. Okay, do we understand that? I do in measure. That, that this was a marriage contract, a covenantal agreement that, again, the people said, we, we will do all these things. We covenantally join ourselves to Yahweh's covenantal commands and ways and promises. They said, yes. They said, I do. So could it be in light of that? I'm going to read this again. 
Could it be that Moses breaking the tablets was not just some random act of rage, but perhaps he understood that by destroying the marriage contract that the law was, he could minimize the severity of the consequence and punishment by hopefully causing the people to only be judged as a promiscuous, unmarried woman instead of a whore. Now that is a mouthful. And I'm no Bible scholar, and this may be far-fetched and ridiculous, and anybody could say, that's, not, that's just a bunch of, bunch of words, Joel, but what if it's possible? I'm going to read the last part again. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't know if this is even coming out clear in my own mouth. It's clear up here. Could it be possible that when Moses came down, yes, he's angry. That's, a, that's not an argument to be had. It says in the Word he was infuriated. Yes. But I'm saying is there more to it than that? Did he break the tablets because he felt in his heart at least wondering and hoping because he desired that none of these people would be judged in the way they deserved? We know that. We see that. Could it be that by breaking them, he hoped that maybe that would, that would curb the severity of the judgment and punishment that would come to these people? And maybe they would be judged as just an, un, uh, as an unmarried one instead of the whore that they were by breaking their covenant with the Father. I'd propose the idea that Moses throwing down the ten words was more than just some happenstance and a result of his anger alone. I believe that it demonstrated that he had already broken, that they, rather, had already broken the commandments that he was about to deliver, like a physical tablet form, and he was about to give them to the people. Moses knew that by what he saw, by the golden calf and the dancing, and the attributing of their deliverance to Yahweh through it, they had become a whorish people, I believe it demonstrated to him that they had already broken what he was about to give them. Perhaps Moses knew by what his eyes beheld that the commandments in their present condition were of no use now. They would only bring Yah's wrath and judgment. This seems weighty to me. What if he knew that if he gave it to them then, They'd be obliterated as covenant breakers, fashioning idols out of their covenantal earrings. They would now only bring about Yah's wrath and judgment. Without question, we're, cl we're clearly told that Moses was angry as he had just descended from the presence of Yahweh himself, only to encounter his people being invited into covenantal pouring themselves with delight, with delight, dancing around and singing. Just a thought, again, that we would just won't, we won't examine any, any further here for the sake of time, but I felt, I felt like that was... I like imagining the scenario, the situation that I read. I like envisioning what's going on, what people were seeing, and what it meant when they saw it from their perspective, from their eyes. I don't know. Now I want to touch on this for just a moment, and we'll keep moving. I want to briefly touch on how I personally believe that in many ways, Christianity that I have known, as much as she hates the pharisaical mindset and always is dogging out the Pharisees, I believe that she too wants an earthly king just like the Pharisees did. 
And again, we're following the same train of thought. We're not jumping out of this in any way. This is all interconnected. Set up a kingdom, a natural earthly kingdom, national Christianity, a godly nation. Enact laws and edicts that benefit us, just like in the days of Yeshua. They wanted him to be a king so they could be his royal subjects and rule and reign with him right there in a natural kingdom and be someone under his subjection, of course, but a strong, mighty, earthly king. Of course, he had nothing to do with that. But we, too, don't quite know what to do when the king comes. <laughs> Lays down his life unto death. And is seemingly this weak... And I use this with... with I'm using this correctly to make a point. Like a loser. A weakling. Laying down his life. That's Like everybody said, this is... This is the king? This is the God-man you've been talking about? Him? I don't think we know what to do with that. He lays down his life unto death. Self-denial. And then he calls us to do the same. He tells us that this, this is actually how we overcome. Many will follow what we've already established, the way of idolatry, where gods, the plurality of gods, brings you favor, blessing, good things. The people of Athens were, a, were poster children for that, the exchange principle that I talked about. But what of what, what this king, this Messiah was talking about and always speaking of? Trials, persecution, constantly denying your fleshly cravings. Who wants to hear that, <laughs> right? It's a narrow way that few find, and, and even fewer who actually find it choose to walk it and journey out onto it. Now, I've said this for years, to get back to Paul for a few minutes. I believe that if Paul, because of what I just said, if he walked in to the average church service today and spoke as he did to the other ones that we read about and love so much, We'd run him off and call him a judgmental heretic. I've said that for 15 years. How dare you come in here and say that? You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Torah teacher of Torah teachers, law keeper, keeper of Yah's ways. We would exalt ourselves over him and tell him, who do you think you are? much of what he received in his day and age as well, I believe we would repeat. It's worth noting, however, that most every issue that Paul faced in his travels, as we looked at and just touched on Thessalonica, Berea, and of course we, we camped in Athens, it was political in nature. I enjoyed studying this out for a little bit. We're barely going to touch on it. It was not necessarily always religious. He preached a king. We talked about this in part one in small measure. He preached following a king, and we'll miss this point entirely. And, some, and we'll just continue to write out this doctrine we've been handed that says that the Jews rejected the Messiah. Oh, how horrible. But there is more to it than that. There is a lot at stake that we don't properly understand. Yeshua was, a, he was this complex Emmanuel man. I'm not sure I would understand him rightly myself. I think I would look at him and... I would be baffled. I wouldn't understand him. 
I'm going to reiterate something I said earlier in this series and pose it as a question. Has Christianity in any way created a false messiah idol that is likened unto the golden calf? In our own likeness, in our own preference, it simply brings us what we want, and we've branded him God. Why would we want to do that? That sounds heretical, doesn't it? I could hear a collective gasp from the Christian church saying, we would never do that. Maybe not knowingly, but maybe in religiosity and in ignorance, likened into an altar to an unknown God. Maybe we've in fact done that. We've not loved Yahweh's law. We've not kept ourselves pure and undefiled. We've not understood the, the, the son, the bridegroom, going away to prepare a place for us in the Father's house and all that that really meant and what, in fact, was going on. We've not known that. We've been ignorant. And because we're tired of his waiting, we're, the bridegroom's never coming. We're not prepared anymore. We're wearing dirtied-up garments where we've prostituted ourselves with idolatry, and we've fashioned idols out of our own covenantal earrings, and thereby we've been divorced and outcast unrighteous, lawbreakers. We've not kept ourselves pure and undefiled. Just like the endless list of those who have gone before us, we have not endured well. Both the children of Israel and those who in the kingdoms of men have we fashioned a graven image according to our own preference, which I would promote tenderly as I know how has been grace, grace doctrine. Grace doctrine, man. Say a prayer, be forgiven, and go on, go to church, get baptized maybe, and you're awesome. We're in a grace age. And in the, in the process, we've exalted ourselves. We've deified ourselves like Tower of Babel. It's all within us, all the power, all the strength. The New Age verbiage has just been indoctrinated into the church and adopted by Western Christianity, and now we say, Jesus is in your heart. Now you can mentally ascend to be like Jesus by basking in the presence of Holy Spirit and playing loud worship music. We've exalted ourselves, entirely covered with religious edifices, graven Im images, and idols. So much so that we've entirely convinced generation after generation that it's really all about God. It's really all about God, the cross, the, the cathedral, the garb, the ritual. It's really about God now. Well, what about Sunday worship? It's all about God. What about Sabbath? What about Seventh-day Sabbath? No, Sunday. We have made it. It's all about God, I promise. What about this? And It's all about God. And it gives us peace of mind. I would say, like the children of Israel at the base of the mountain, fashioning with graven tools, graving tools to make a graven image that we can touch and feel and see and just dance around and eat and feel a whole lot better. I say we've done, we have done the same thing. And attributed it all to, we would say, God. 
But to use Paul's words directed to us today, we've been really religious, but we've been really ignorant. So when all is said and done, we're going to bring this to a close and just make it three parts. We have to ask ourselves, are we any different than those that we have discussed here on the program in this three-part series? Have we been different, and are we different now? Have we been different? The lights come on. We've seen our idolatry in the graven image Western Christianity Jesus that is a grace doctrine. Do what you want. There's enough blood for that. Messiah, you don't keep commands. You don't have to do anything. You love God and love people, but there's nothing that comes out of that, and there's no definition from Torah to tell you how to even do that and what that even is. Are we any different? I mean Christianity of 2021. Are we any different than those that have gone before us? And these two accounts, just two, that we've talked about. Are Yahweh and his commands enough for us? It wasn't enough for the children of Israel. They wouldn't wait. They would not wait for his instruction. They committed covenantally. They said yes. But then they forsook their part. And they were not a bride made ready. Whether it's our impatience like the children of Israel and the golden calf or our natural drive to erect graven images that we need to be able to see and touch like the religious ones of Athens, it is idolatry. We can sugarcoat it. We can call it diversity. We can call it denominations. We can call it whatever we want. I don't much care. In my own life, it's true as well. What I call something, it just does not matter. It is idolatry. What are we doing in the waiting? Will we worship Yahweh as he has prescribed? And what pleases him by what he tells us pleases him? And what he says is love? And what he says is sin? Will we love him how we want? Or will we read, if you love me, keep my commandments, said Yeshua. And my commandments are not my own. I speak what the Father speaks. So we can't say we just love him and not keep his commandments, which his commandments were the Father's commandments. It's idolatry. We then create a Jesus that is not the Yeshua of the Scriptures. We go about it our way. However we desire, by our own strength, our own abilities, our own good ideas. The church is full of grandiose new ideas on how to be the church. Makes me ill. Thankfully, though, thankfully, what's our hope in all this then to close the door on this? This is no gloom and doom message, friend. This is a warning to smack us up against the face and say, wake up, church. Wake up. You're riddled with idolatry in here so that we can wake up to the truth and see that Yahweh has extended another opportunity to come back in clean and undefiled, uncorrupted, through Yeshua, the bridegroom who died. The bride was already dead. The betrothed was dead. The bridegroom died, and therefore a new covenantal contract could be drawn up again. I don't even have time to open up that because I only understand this much of something as big as the, the earth towards the Hebrew wedding model. 
The contract is open again. The covenant has been extended by invitation to be grafted into the people of Yahweh Elohim via the blood and sacrificial life <coughs> of Yeshua the Son, the bridegroom. A betrothal is for us to now be made ready. The commandments were reissued. How incredible was that? We don't even have time to talk about that. I alluded to how Moses broke the tablets and then he had to get a whole new set that Yahweh God himself took care of after Moses fashioned out the tablets themselves, the actual stone. The commandments were reissued, friend. Yahweh is full of mercy. He's full of mercy now and he was full of mercy then. And this time, the commandments were reissued, written by Yah's own hand. Exodus 34. And then, he sent his son Yeshua to invite us into the new covenant reality, which is what? The exact same Torah in Exodus that Yahweh wrote upon the tablets of stone, he said, as prophesied in Jeremiah 31, will now be written upon the tablets of your heart. The same Torah on the tablets to the tablets. The new covenant. You do, covenant one. I will, covenant two. Yahweh said, you will the first time. The second time, I will. I will write it upon your hearts. So if there's air in our lungs, which if you're watching this program, there is. There's time for us to investigate our ways, to turn in teshuvah, repentance. The season of Teshuvah is upon us. May we be rightly reconciled and received back to the, to the betrothed one, remaining, remaining blameless, pure, undefiled. Our goal is to rightly worship Yahweh in spirit and in truth according to His prescribed ways, period. No idolatry in our hearts keeping Father's ways, keeping His commands as we eagerly await the arrival of our bridegroom, Yeshua. Friend, are you doing this? I'm thinking of this, and then we'll close the door. When Aaron gave them the idea of taking out the breaking down the earrings and making the golden calf, they eagerly rushed to rip them out and melt them down. Parallel that with those in the scriptures who are eagerly awaiting the return of the bridegroom. Friends, it's going to be one or the other. Which will it be for you? I have to answer that for myself. And as I'm always saying, it is being, to, it is being determined moment by moment for the rest of my days because he who endures to the end will be saved. So, friends, we have been guilty of fashioning idols out of our covenantal earrings, but there has been a plan, a reissuing of Yahweh's laws and commands because He is good and faithful and kind and desires none to perish. And He has invited you in to His covenant once more via Himself through Yeshua the Son, the Emmanuel God-Man reality. It's incredible. I hope this has spoken to you in some way. It's spoken to me as I studied it and even now as I've talked about it for, how, for however long now. So thank you for watching. If you've got questions, challenges, corrections, I'm open to that. There's error in me. 
and in this. But please, sift it out for truth. Submit it to Holy Spirit and to the Word. Follow the path of the Bereans with Paul. Bible's out. What's true? If it's not, burn it. I say that all the time. If what I've said is not true to this and what this really says, not your doctrine now, not your favorite you know, personal um, edition of versions, but what does this say through study, through questioning, and through asking the Spirit to help us, any one of us, find truth? If anything outside of that, burn it up. But if there's any truth, may it remain. Thank you for watching. This has been the Path to Zion podcast. We're laboring to rediscover the ancient way that has not been handed to us, friend. But I believe that Yahweh is shining a light on it in this hour, and I'm very thankful to be a, a molecular part of it. Won't you join us if you're not already? Reach out to us at Path Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for watching. Amen.